is Fortune's Wheel, the podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. So, William's gone, sailed back home to Normandy, leaving two of his most trusted to sort it all out on the island in his stead. The English are left to look on, essentially accepting their new king's attitude that being a duke in France is still superior than being a king in England. Jeez, no wonder each nation has had beef with each other for much of the last thousand years. And the English weren't going to take it lying down. Today, the English begin to light fires across the west and south. While we make our way to those things, let me urge you to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening to and to share the show with others you know and on your social media. Also, great stuff's happening on Patreon as well. In our current Patreon series, we'll be following the goings-on of Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and Normandy, and others, of course, as William struggles with the fierce rebelliousness of the proud Anglo-Saxons he'd unseated in England. So, if you're curious about the whole picture of the Norman conquest of England, you'll only find it on Patreon. Alright, here we go, folks. Today's episode, episode 75, is entitled, Sparks. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. As King William I of England returned to his duchy in France, and his title there as Duke William II of Normandy, yeah, still haven't quite wrapped my head around that one yet, He enjoyed the first part of 1067 in a somewhat jubilant state. He was home with his people, his treasures, his hostage, uh, his honored guests, and his beloved wife, his duchess, his new queen, the beautiful, indomitable Matilda of Flanders. More on her soon. But back in England, he could only imagine what was happening having left his kingdom, essentially, with two co-rulers and two capitals. He was hoping that that all was well. You know, both Odo of Bayou, who ruled from fortified Dover in the southeast, and William Fitzosborne, who ruled from fortified Winchester in south-central England, well, they were leveling up the Norman defenses as fast as they could. They were also tasked with subduing the English people as quickly and as bloodlessly as possible. William of Poitiers wrote, quote, They burned with a common desire to keep the Christian people in peace and deferred readily to each other's advice. They paid the greatest respect to justice, as the king had admonished, so that fierce men and enemies might be corrected and brought into friendship. The lesser officials were equally zealous in the castles where each had been placed, end quote. Uh, so, or Derek Vitalis's response when he came across this particular passage of Poitiers, as he wrote many decades later, uh, let's see what Orderic Vitalis had to say. He says, quote, Meanwhile, the English were groaning under the Norman yoke and suffering oppressions from the proud lords who ignored the king's injunctions. The petty lords who were guarding the castles oppressed all the native inhabitants of high and low degree and heaped shameful burdens on them. End quote. Interesting take. And as for King William's co-regents, Orderic held them in equal esteem. Quote, 
For Bishop Odo and William Fitzosborne, the king's vice-regents, were so swollen with pride that they would not deign to hear the reasonable plea of the English or give them impartial judgment, end quote. As Mark Morris writes, after giving these two accounts of the same events, Morris writes, quote, clearly not much common ground. The only point on which Poitiers and Orderic seem to agree is that the newcomers were based in castles, end quote. Now, beyond the plight of the English, these two men, Odo and William Fitzosborne, were no doubt busy ordering new Mott and Bailey fortifications built in a number of new places, such as Canterbury, Wallingford, and Berkhamsted, while reinforcing already existing structures and walls. Now, to be clear, uh, again, a Mott and Bailey was the precursor to the castle we all know. In Morris's words, a Mott and Bailey was, quote-unquote, a giant mound of earth, to support a wooden tower, paired with a shallower but more extensive enclosure to, to house and protect the castle's other buildings. See, the Mott and Bailey was a quick, and you know in the grand scheme of things, I mean lightning quick, defensive structure that could be erected within days, given the manpower. As the Normans pushed beyond their mainland borders into other areas of hostile France, we see them perfect this kind of warfare and defense time and time again. William was a huge fan of these structures. Therefore, it was pretty much an inevitability that, you know, England would see these at the very beginning of the conquest. As we know, garrisons were left wherever William went. And you can be sure that he'd ordered the construction of Mott and Bailey's as, as he went as well. We still have proof of them at places like Pevensey and Dover and London. It would be from the sheer number of Mott and Baileys built by the Normans that much of the resistance in England would be put down. No longer was England full of armies amassing in open camps. No, now armies could safely sleep, uh, safely and snugly behind makeshift walls. Or Derek Vitalis wrote, quote, The fortifications that the Normans called castles were scarcely known in the English provinces, and so the English in spite of their courage and love of fighting, could put up only a weak resistance to their enemies, end quote. So between the castles and castle-like structures of the Mott and Baileys, led by William's two henchmen, because, hey, let's call a spade for a spade, things were nothing like Poitiers was making them out to be. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicles at the same time stated, quote, Bishop Odo and Earl William, were left behind here, and they built castles far and wide throughout the land, oppressing the unhappy people, and things went ever from bad to worse when God wills, may the end be good. End quote. I mean, you can't help but feel for the English here, especially when their own chroniclers were, were moaning and grumbling about the conditions around the kingdom. So what were the English to do when faced with, with such an oppressive force? Well, Mark Morris writes, quote, Small wonder, then, that the English, as Orderic puts it, now he's quoting Orderic Vitalis, quote, plotted ceaselessly to find some way of shaking off a yoke that was so intolerable and unaccustomed. End quote for Orderic, by the way. Uh, so back to Morris. During the year 1067, 
we hear of several local risings by the English against their new castle-building overlords. In Herefordshire, one of the most powerful English thanes, the aptly named Edric the Wild, fought back with some success against the new Norman garrisons installed in those original pre-conquest castles, end quote. Now, if you remember, these were most likely the fortifications built by Earl Harold Godwinson way back during his battles against the Welsh. Now, speaking of the Welsh, though the powerful King Griffith ap Llewellyn was long dead at this point, since then, Wales had split back up into various regions. But two quickly emerged from the relative chaos, led by King Blethyn and King Rewallen. Having caused heavy casualties against his Norman enemies, Edric the Wild was still suffering from the constant Norman invasions into his lands, resulting in a great amount of destruction there. So Edric contacted two Welsh kings, these two that rose to the top in Wales, and they decided that the Norman problem, you could say, the Norman problem was one that neither side could ignore. So they joined forces. And the Welsh returned to England. Now, we flesh out the details of this chapter on an upcoming uh, Patreon episode that supports the season of the series that supports the season of this podcast. So I urge you to head over there. It's my shameless plug here and become a supporting listener to hear that story with Edric the Wild and King Blethyn and King Rewallen. And what happens there in the West of England? It's, it's fascinating stuff. And to be sure. But for our purposes here on the public podcast here, suffice it to say that the Welsh play a major role in what happens along England's western reaches during the conquest. And as, <laughs> let's just say it, as they've made crystal clear throughout their history, the Welsh, they simply cannot be ignored in England's story, period. To shift our gears here, though, Though we remain in the west and southwest areas of what was formerly, you know, just a year earlier, referred to as the Earldom of Wessex, we have to take the time to figure out what happened to the House of Godwin for a moment. And you know, on episodes like uh, like this one, it's they're interesting because you know, as I'm as I'm composing episodes like this, I'm afraid to jump around too much, but maybe maybe it's going to serve a, a good purpose because as I'm researching and as I'm writing, I'm sometimes finding myself saying, whoa, 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 hang on. I was just over here and now I'm over here, you know, trying to get things in the order that they go in. Well, if I'm confused, how did the English feel, you know, a thousand years ago when this was happening or 950 or so years ago when this was happening? Um, I'm sure that if our episodes are having are, are having to jump around like this, well, you can only imagine that, you know, boots on the ground there as it's happening, um, there was an equal sense, if not far, far worse sense of confusion and dread and, con, you know, frustration and everything. So, um, yeah, that's just the nature of, I think, the, that I'm learning. That's just the nature of the Norman conquest itself. It is confusing insofar as there are so many pieces that are everyone is reacting at this point okay so if you're confused I apologize for that but that's kind of it seems like that's just the 
It's just the time, you know, that, that it was. So jumping back into it, we're going to try to figure out again where the house of Godwin is, and this is going to kind of set things up a little bit going forward. Earl Godwin, uh, remember the old, the patriarch Earl Godwin there, over the course of almost 40 years, if you remember, he's, he'd amassed such a fortune that his power and influence not only challenged that of King Edward himself, but, but it outlasted you know his own sudden death in the early 1050s. This wealth and this influence catapulted his children to the forefront of English politics to take his place, namely Harold, who paved the way for his two younger brothers. Now that said, equally, if not more so, Godwin had also positioned his own daughter, arguably the scion of the brood, in the king's very bedchamber. Now the house of Godwin, for all intents and purposes, were the real power brokers on the island for at least, what, three decades. So when King Edward died in 1066, it's no wonder who swooped in to wear the crown when presented with a potential heir having yet reached majority. To boot, Harold knew that his brother, the recently ousted Tostig, had been raiding the coastlines along the North Sea, and, and Duke William across the way was, was harboring his own delusions of grandeur. There was no time to put a boy on the throne. And many of our listeners have commented over the previous, what, 70-some episodes about my, um, how should we say, my proclivity to repeat. <laughs> and personally, as a lifelong learner and an educator, I'm pretty set on my ideas that repetition can and does boost anyone's understanding of anything by, you know, just getting the basic facts down pat and seeing how they all fit together. So in that spirit, I'll repeat once again who that boy who hadn't reached majority by Edward's passing was, just to tie the loose ends together. Well, that's Edmund Ironside's grandson, Edgar Etheling. Now fast forward here. October 1st, 1066. Try to keep it short and sweet. Harold Godwinson at this point is King of England. His widowed sister is the Dowager Queen. His brothers, Lefwina and Gerth, are are both powerful earls by his side. His other brother, Tostig, again lies dead on a battlefield alongside his ally and Norwegian king, the legend, Harold Hardrada. And we cannot forget about Wolfnoth. Remember him? King Harold Godwin's nephew, still, after however many years, sits languishing in some random Norman dungeon under Duke William's boot. So before the month is out, though, before the month of October is out, England will have no king, as Harold Godwinson's bones, some say, rotted on some hill near Hastings, alongside both Earls Leofwina and Gerth and thousands, thousands of Anglo-Saxon and Norman warriors. A foreign duke is pushing across southern England at this point on a tear toward Dover to set up a semi-permanent base of operations for a further invasion. The Dowager Queen found refuge in Winchester, and the rest of the House of Godwin seemed to have vanished, including the surviving wife of, wife of Earl Godwin himself and current matriarch of the powerful family, Githa. Now, essentially, if they weren't dead, they were on the run during this time. But key part, the records do shed light on some of the next couple years of the surviving Godwinson family, which we will unravel as our story progresses. But I didn't want us to forget that the house of Godwin is still out there at this point. 
Now, I warned you all that much of the conquest seems like a like a circus, I suppose we could say. You know, circus insofar that, you know, over here we have jugglers and clowns and elephants and acrobats and, you know, they're all just scattered about. And what used to be insensitively called freak shows, they're off in the corner and, you know, all this is happening. And they're all simultaneously, it seems, vying for our attentions over the next, say, decade, right? All these things. They want to be the most important thing happening, you know, at any given moment. But they're also intensely focused on what they're doing. Each act has a mission, a goal. And when seen individually, it holds one attention quite effectively. However, when, when one steps back and sees the show in its entirety, its fullest manifestation, you'll see that the circus is an incredible fireworks display, you could say, of, of differing events that comprise, at the end of the day, one single event that we call the Norman Conquest of England. You know, it's something to be experienced, so to speak, as a whole. So, to me, the Norman Conquest of England seemed quite similar to this. Unlike the Danish Conquest of England decades earlier, where there were essentially, you know, two major forces tracking and shadowing and occasionally engaging each other until one moment, you know, tipped the balances to one side. And in the wake of Hastings, England was a circus with no ringleader to coordinate and connect all those various uprisings around the island into one single event. England was only loosely by name, well, England, I suppose you could say. I mean, the kingdom of the Angles and Saxons was certainly still in existence, but history has debated and debated over it. And, and, and the consensus has really resulted in England post-Hastings was leaderless. In fact, despite the vote of Edgar Etheling, it still remained kingless for a time, especially when Edgar Etheling surrendered his own crown, quite literally surrendered his crown in person to the invader, Duke William. England was in absolute disarray between October 1066 and, you know, well, for a while, but we'll say January 1067 here. And when word came that Duke William finally, officially, was crowned King of England, well, I just, I think it's naive to say that, that mixed into a huge amount of dread already in the hearts and minds of the English everywhere, there was probably a little relief too. Maybe now they could just, you know, get back to tending their fields, get back to making money to care for their families. Get back to just, whatever, paying their taxes to keep their lords off their backs and off their front lawns, so to speak. So what does William do? Does he stick around to see that his new kingdom, one of the richest and most fertile lands in all of Europe, mind you, one that had been coveted by so many nations around you know the centuries that surrounded this event, does he stick around? And see that it, it finds itself on stable grounds politically, economically, and even spiritually? Does he make sure that he builds trust within his this, this new nobility of Anglo-Saxon liegemen? Does he allow a cooperative restructuring to fit his needs without 
stomping to dust any remnants of the previous structure, a structure that was pretty stable, you know, for quite some time. That was, that was a good solid 20 years of stability under, under Edward. A couple blips on the radar, of course, but overall, of course not. As we know, William hightailed it with English clergy and nobility uh, back home to Normandy and put two thugs in charge there. So to disastrous effect, I think it's worth highlighting. Now, it wasn't just the absence of William or the dismal public relations exhibited by Bishop Odo and William Fitzosborne that made it such a terrible time. Sure, at the beginning, they get the vast amount of the credit, but it seems that when the smoke settled and England had a new king, and to that point, only two of William's loyalists were rewarded with something resembling the spoils of war, benefits of a job well done, well... There was an old friend of the podcast, though certainly no friend of the English, that made his presence, and the presence of his exceptional mouth balance, known. That's right, Count Eustache of Boulogne decided that any lands or treasure he did receive was crumbs compared to the double-decker wedding cake he'd earned at Hastings. There's a lot at play here, and no easy way to unfold it, I warned you that earlier. But I, I'll try again to give some bullet points as to what's happening here. So, a little context. It's 1051, and Eustace was being hosted by King Edward of England, an old acquaintance and one-time brother-in-law. There in London, it's, it's thought they cooked up a plan to bait the overreaching Earl Godwin into an all-out rift with the crown, hopefully to unseat that house of Godwin that had become so powerful. We spoke in more detail on the podcast about this, but... This was when Count Eustace and his men, led by Eustace's glorious mustache, waving in the breeze of the galloping steed below him, that Eustace picked a fight with the people of Dover and retreated back to London, to Edward, tails between their legs. Well, this, of course, sparked a major conflict with Godwin. So, so there's one piece of that puzzle that we've already talked about, the puzzle here in 1067. Now, the other is another role this little scoundrel Count Eustace played into just a couple years after his front st his front stage part, you know, and, and nearly ripping England to pieces. See, when Duke William was jumping in and out of his relationships with surrounding dukes and counts in France, and this includes the King of France himself, mind you, there was one point when he faced down Geoffrey the Hammer Martel, which, I'm sorry, doesn't that sound like an old 1980s wrestler's name? Anyway... Uh, Geoffrey Martel of Anjou, who had teamed up with the French king to put an end to this upstart bastard Norman Duke. Remember all that? Well, see, Martel and the king's forces went out and bought some extra muscle. And some of this extra muscle came from Boulogne, led by their count, a man with the world-class soup strainer. That's right, Eustace. After nearly causing an English civil war, he took part in a failed attempt to take down the incredibly powerful young Norman Duke, uh, that is William, of course. I've mentioned before here on the podcast how strange this idea of mercenaries are to our modern sense of military structures, whereas today some level of nationalism and patriotism plays deeply into the makeup of a nation's military force. Back then, you could just pay for some muscle and people just accepted it as such. 
And that's what we should do when studying these times too. Just accept the fact that Eustace was on the wrong side of history in England. And then again on the wrong side of history against Duke William. Only to turn around about 15 or so years later and fight with Duke William against the English. Oh, and in his dealings with William before, by the way, uh, unlike with England where he got off scot-free as some twisted victim in the whole thing. See, with William, Eustace was forced to give up his own son to William as a political hostage to prevent further actions against Normandy. Okay, <laughs> so shake it off and, and, and we'll continue here. So that's the setup. That's the context for what Eustace does next in the year 1067. Unhappy with his payments, he mustered his own forces back home in Boulogne and sailed straight for, well, there's really only one place that Eustace really has it out for, for in England, right? Yep, Eustace is on his way to Dover to pay a little visit. Morris describes the inexplicable rift between Eustace and William as just that, inexplicable. He explains how Orderic Vitalis just called it mutual jealousy while, get this, Poitiers, ever the cheerleader of William, said that he won't explain why the fallout happened, because if he did, if he did, then you would have no doubt that William was was not at fault and that Eustace was the instigator and the culprit for such treachery. But we won't get into it, though, right? Uh, but just know that if we did get into it, you would agree that William was totally, totally not at fault. Yeah, that's Poitiers' explanation of why Eustace makes his move on Dover next. So believe whoever you want, but Morris is probably the most accurate. The rift is lost to history. Besides that, though, there's just one more piece to this, this mind-boggling puzzle. Eustace didn't decide to just break with William and take Dover on his own accord. Let me repeat that. Eustace didn't decide to break with William and take Dover on his own. No, it was, and get this, it was the people of Dover, under the unbearable weight of Norman oppression, who secretly sent messengers to Eustace on the mainland, pleading for him to come and take control of Dover, which in turn would kick out the Normans, there led by Odo of Bayeux, the new king's half-brother. Morris writes, quote, He, that is Eustace, he assembled an invasion force and sailed across the channel at night, intending to take Dover by surprise at dawn. His intelligence was seemingly good because both Odo of Bayeux and the castle's commander, Hugh de Montfort, were far away at the time, on the other side of the Thames, and had taken with them most of their troops. The men of Kent were already up in arms, says Poitiers, and would have been joined by rebels from other regions had the siege lasted as long as just two days. End quote. Alas, those scant Norman soldiers left inside the walls of Dover were not inclined to give up so easily. Morris writes, quote, Rather than wait for more attackers to assemble, the Norman garrison sallied out of the gates and put their foes to flight, end quote. Eustace, 
Eustace was able to escape aboard a ship and sail home. But Morris says that many of his men were chased down and forced to plunge to their deaths from the edges of the famously towering sheer cliffs nearby. He says, quote, their plan of replacing one foreign lord with another having come to nothing, end quote. And that is a tough pill to swallow for both English and Count Eustace. Once again, the Normans somehow pull off the unthinkable and win against Norman, or excuse me, against superior forces, which goes to show why we focused on fleshing out the Norman story as thoroughly as we can here on the podcast. I think an argument could certainly be made that the entire 11th century, from the very first year of it to the very last year of it, could be encompassed by the goings-on in Normandy and the Norman diaspora across Europe and eventually into the Holy Land throughout the entire century. We're not finished with this century yet, but it seems that from Iberia to to England and from Italy to Jerusalem, the Normans, I mean, they effectively took the medieval wheel and piloted this part of history almost single-handedly. It's impressive. And it, in, in, in my opinion, it's, it's worthy of our admiration and if anything, our attention if not admiration, our attention. But at the end of the day, for better or for worse, which, as you know, is a value judgment I try very hard to leave to you, the listener, we simply cannot deny the audacity, the greatness, and I, I don't mean great as in a, a, a good or bad. I don't mean that. Just the, the, the extent, right? That's what I mean by the greatness. So we can't deny the audacity and the greatness and the ambition the military dominance and the influence that Normans had on, gosh, on nearly everything to occur in Europe after they arrived and set up shop. It's an almost unthinkable proposition to imagine a 21st century world without the thousand-year-long influence of these French-speaking former Vikings whose major impetus in changing history stemmed from, what, overcrowding? and the practice of primogeniture. You know, in short, I feel that though the Norman conquest of England is certainly the Norman impact that we tend to focus on due to the incomprehensible scale of influence and power that England in, it, in any of its many manifestations over the centuries, you know, be it Great Britain or the United Kingdom, etc., has had on world history, we can't forget that it was but one Norman conquest. There were others, which we will get to, but on the next episode, we continue our story of, of how the proud English, this Norman conquest, how the proud English and their story of who refused to be conquered ended up, well, you know, being conquered. From the tragedy of Hastings in October of 1066 to the debacle of Count Eustace's joining of an English revolt in Dover. In, in around the autumn of, of 1067, England was shaping up to be an indefinite war zone at this point. And William couldn't afford to make England his full-time job. It, it wasn't supposed to be like this, he must have thought. These pesky English, these pesky English were supposed to know their places. They were supposed to bow to their new king. They were supposed to know when they were defeated and then do everything in their power to make it up to him. 
That's how it was on the mainland. What happened in 1067 just goes to show how little this Norman understood about his new subjects. And what happens after 1067 will go to show how little William actually cared. England was his, not the other way around. There was no vote. There was merely fiat. And these backwards islanders would soon understand what having a mainland king was like. And though the wife of Earl Godwin switched it up on you, didn't I? Remember her, Githa? In the waning weeks of 1067, though she would appear, reappear, excuse me, in the records, along with a few other Godwinsons, you know, her plans, her plans would reach William's ears as of 1067, and as it came to a close, William was forced to act quickly as this surprise plot was about to blow the doors wide open on Norman supremacy over England. He needed to get to England as fast as possible. And he would arrive days before, just barely enough time to mobilize his forces to avert any possible disaster. The Godwinsons were back. Until next time.